You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and also an LLS volunteer. And I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us on this episode. In recognition of March being Multiple Myeloma Awareness Month, today we'll be discussing myeloma, including new and emergent treatment options, and how to best determine a treatment plan. I have to say this has been an incredibly exciting time for clinicians who are treating patients with myeloma because there's a feeling of uh, that we can do so much more than ever in the past. 30 years ago, treatment was really Alcoran and prednisone, and survival was very, very short. And now, thankfully, we have more and more patients living for years and decades. And to talk more about this today, I'm particularly excited to be joined by Dr. Edward Stapmauer, who is the Section Chief of Hematologic Malignancies. He is also the Roseman, Tart, Harrow, and Schaefer Family President's Distinguished Professor at the University of Pennsylvania Abramson Cancer Center in Philadelphia. Dr. Stapmauer, thanks so much for joining us. Ken, thank you so much uh, for this opportunity. LLS does such a wonderful job, and it's my pleasure to discuss multiple myeloma. Thank you. So I'd like to start out with probably the most basic question, but I want to add a little twist to it. I mean, essentially, I want to ask you, what is myeloma? But what I want to add in there is, how has our understanding changed in the last decade or two? We know it's a clonal proliferation of plasma cells, but what else have we learned that you think is important for us to know? The last 30 years or so has been just, as you sort of said at the beginning, a revolution in our understanding and our treatment for all blood cancers and particularly multiple myeloma. And as you said, myeloma is a cancer of plasma cells. It's a clonal proliferation of plasma cells. And we all know that plasma cells normally make the antibodies that fight infection. And based on mutations that they uh, may develop, they then can proliferate with unregulated efficiency and really mm-hmm. cause the, uh, the cancer of myeloma. What I think is different is when we first were studying myeloma, we thought of it as, as maybe a single clone of cells. And now we know that probably from the diagnosis, from the initial presentation of myeloma, there are numerous clones of these abnormal plasma cells. And in many ways, one of them dominates at every given time in the natural history of myeloma, but it really becomes sort of a game of whack-a-mole where the initial therapy gets rid of one clone, but then frequently there's another clone that then starts proliferating with different characteristics and potentially different sensitivities to therapy. I think the other major area is we focus so much on the malignant plasma cells, but they Mm -hmm. are growing in an environment, a micro environment of the bone marrow that we're really just starting to understand. And it is that interaction between 
the microenvironment of the bone marrow and the other lymphocytes and myeloid cells and cytokines that either makes an environment that is conducive to these malignant plasma cells growing or can be inhibitory. And a lot of our work is trying to make the environment more hostile for these uh, plasma cells to grow. Very, very interesting. Let me ask you about a couple patients then. So in the last few weeks, I've seen two patients. One had IgA kappa, one had IgG kappa myeloma. They're both several years into their illness, and both now just have light chain disease and are not producing heavy chain anymore. So along those lines, was there more than likely a clone there that was producing light chains that then became dominant? Or in fact, do you think that the myeloma cells change over time? Yeah, I think that what what you're describing sounds more like a clonal evolution that, you know, I think of a malignant plasma cell as a genetically unstable cell. And so they are prone to develop more mutations also as time goes on. And one of the terms that we use for what you're describing is light chain escape, that a malignant plasma cell that's relatively differentiated is capable of making a full antibody, a heavy chain and a light chain. But then as they become more and more deranged, sometimes we just see them making light chains. And so if you're not measuring Uh, light chains somewhat routinely, sometimes you can miss that progression. And so that's why whenever I monitor patients with myeloma, I do tend to, even though I know that they have an IgA kappa, and and you can see that on a serum protein electrophoresis, I still will do light chain analysis as well as quantitative immunoglobulin, so I don't miss that sort of light chain escape that does occasionally happen. You know, I want to ask you, in light of what you were talking about, the microenvironment and sort of the interaction between that and the plasma cells, how do you look at the phenomenon of MGUS? Do patients have an MGUS versus transforming into myeloma because something to do with their microenvironment or their immune system? I'd just be interested in sort of what your theories are. Yeah, no, this is a real, very important and major area of investigation. And um, I think there's definitely an interaction between malignant plasma cells in the microenvironment. And exactly what you're suggesting is my philosophy. I don't know how much it is definite science yet, but my philosophy, certainly of smoldering myeloma, which is a definitely a malignancy where you have malignant plasma cells, but patients can sometimes smolder, meaning that they have, you know, greater than 10% malignant plasma cells in their bone marrow and usually monoclonal protein, but don't have the other manifestations of lytic bone lesions and cytopenias and renal insufficiency. And patients can sometimes smolder for years and sometimes for decades. And I do believe that it is because of the sort of yin and yang and the interaction between these malignant plasma cells and the microenvironment, particularly the immune environment that the cells are living in, that sort of keep them in that steady state. And then it's usually either some disruption of the microenvironment or further clonal evolution of the malignant plasma cells, which then leads for that switch to a more malignant disease. There are some diseases, looking at the solid tumor side of things, two diseases in particular that seem to respond to immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy are 
melanoma and also renal cell cancer. And so I did want to ask you, what have we learned about multiple myeloma, which really does not seem to respond to the same type of therapy? And what does that imply about the biology of myeloma? Sure. Well, I mean, if what you're saying when you're thinking of immune therapy is checkpoint inhibition, you know, the uh, pembrolizumab and agents like that, then those agents as single agents have not been as effective in this disease as perhaps other diseases. In fact, we've added them to some of our standard therapies for myeloma with some mixed results. And actually, there are some cautionary stories. On the other hand, if you want to generalize immunotherapy, I would say myeloma is the hallmark for immunotherapy. So let's start off with the immunomodulatory agents, right? So lenalidomide, pomalidomide, thalidomide. We now know that they are targeted therapies to the ubiquinase enzyme, the cerebron component. So they're targeted things, but what they also have done, and the reason why we call them what we call them immunomodulatory agents is because they have a tremendous effect on stimulating T cells and B cells. And in fact, one of the cornerstones of therapy once a patient with myeloma is in remission is actually to use a low dose of lenalidomide as a maintenance therapy. And in many ways, I think the way that works is not so much as a constant chemotherapy killing malignant plasma cells, but more as an immunostimulant to make the patient's own immune systems uh, surveil for uh, myeloma cells. So number one, that class of agents really have a major immune component. And then, of course, there's the whole class of newer agents, monoclonal antibodies, just like with lymphoma, with CD20 monoclonal antibodies. We now have CD38 monoclonal antibodies with the daratumumab. We have BCMA, which is the major newer antibody target where we have an immunoconjugate for that. And then, of course, the big immunotherapy of CAR T-cells, where we are engineering autologous cells to attack myeloma cells. So I would say, if uh, contrary to what you were suggesting, I think uh, immunotherapy in the broad sense has been a major aspect of the current and future therapy for myeloma. So it's really been the checkpoint inhibitors that we have not seen as much. Got it. That's right. That classic sort of solid tumor immunotherapy has been a little bit more fraught with uncertain benefits in myeloma. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the goals of therapy. If a patient asks you, and sometimes they ask, can this be cured? Can my disease be cured? How do you respond? Yeah, I'm still a believer that I consider myeloma a chronic illness, just like uh, chronic myeloid leukemia, where patients have an excellent chance. In fact, I think that the initial therapy of myeloma is one of the medical miracles of the last 20 years. You know, 20 years ago, we were hopeful that maybe half of the patients would respond to therapy and patients would live with the disease for a number of years. Now we expect 90, 95% of people to respond to therapy and people live decades with the disease. So we certainly expect the patients to respond and go into remission. The problem is getting rid of every last abnormal plasma cell. And so generally, you know, 
We all have in our practices patients who we've been monitoring for 20 years, 25 years, who have never relapsed to the disease, but in our hearts we feel that most of the patients still have some malignant plasma cells that are left, and so our goal is to continue to surveil for them and then to treat them if they start mutating and coming back. So I don't use the C word yet that much. However, we do believe that there is a subset of patients who are what we call functionally cured. Patients who, like I said, have been decades later and they're maybe not on anything and not relapsing, then those people are probably functionally cured. But my goal is long-term survival. That not so much cure at this point, though we are always hopeful that our treatments are resulting in, obviously, if you end up living a long life and dying of something else, (laughs) it doesn't matter whether you still had some myeloma in your system, you know? True. Along the lines of monitoring patients, and again, CML, for example, the monitoring is done with PCR. And I think because we've been monitoring patients for quite a while, it's familiar to most practicing oncologists. But in monitoring patients with multiple myeloma who appear to be in remission, what would you consider, again, the state of the art? How often should they be monitored? What's considered a CR in myeloma at present? Well, we're very fortunate that just like in CML, it's always a lot easier to monitor patients if you have a tumor marker, right? And so myeloma, by its nature, being a malignant plasma cell that usually there's either a full antibody or a piece of an antibody that you can monitor. Of course, there's that small percentage of patients, maybe 5% of patients, who we call non-secretory. And those patients are the bane of our existence, much more difficult to monitor. But for most patients, we can monitor using serum primarily, though sometimes urine. And remember, the big four tests are the serum protein electrophoresis, the quantitative immunoglobulins, the IgA, IgG, IgM. Sometimes we shouldn't forget that there's 2% of patients have IgD, and so looking for that. And then, of course, the kappa and lambda light chain, which I think has really been what has revolutionized the monitoring of patients. We can't rely necessarily on any one of these for all patients. Every patient, and I tell them this, every patient has a particular one of those tests that's the most important for them, and that's the most important one to monitor. And really, the art of this is sort of the question that you asked, is how frequently to monitor. And really, it depends on the nature of that person's disease. Initially, we monitor these markers every month. And particularly while patients are undergoing active therapy, once the patients have demonstrated that they're in a remission or are smoldering, and we don't see significant changes, then it becomes every three months, for over a period of time, every six months. Probably the least frequent we monitor patients who are really stable would be once a year. But I would say the average patient with myeloma does require uh, continued monitoring, and I would say the average is probably every three months, and the very stable patients maybe every six months. And the fourth test that we will frequently do is a 24-hour urine or a spot urine for urinary monoclonal protein. And there's a small percentage of patients where that's the only place that you see the monoclonal protein. And so for those patients, that test needs to be conducted even more frequently. 
So I want to ask you about different lines of therapy. There are so many drugs now available that at times for oncologists who are not doing just myeloma for for generalists, it's challenging to uh, look at what's the very best front line, second line, third line. So in broad terms, how do you go about making those choices? Again, I'm particularly interested in how you choose your second and third line. Sure. Well, so there's been, you know, 20 years of looking at these agents for the initial therapy of myeloma. And I think what is very clear is certainly what we, and we use jargon for this sort of stuff, but triplets seem better than doublets as initial therapy. And in fact, there was a a very important big study that looked at the two big proteasome inhibitors, bortezomib and carfilzomib, uh, along with lenalidomide and dexamethasone as the top two triplets. And the big randomized trial basically showed that there was, contrary to what I think we had expected, was that there was no significant difference between the two. And in fact, there might have been a little more toxicity with what we call the KRD over the VRD. So I think uh, VRD is certainly the go-to initial triplet. I think the big debate right now in the myeloma world is there a significant benefit to upfront use of the monoclonal antibody daratumumab making a four drug regimen dara vrd versus vrd and only adding the dara so that's sort of the nuance that we're thinking about and i must admit I'm a little bit sort of in the middle. Uh, Usually if I have patients who have maybe more nasty or higher risk disease, then I'm using the four-drug regimen. But frequently I'll start with a three-drug regimen and then add the fourth drug if the patients aren't responding as well. Incidentally, the primary way that we determine risk or, and it's not so much risk of responding, it's risk of relapsing quickly. The primary way is with chromosome analysis nowadays, the FISH test, looking for mutations that really predict a shorter duration of remission, like a 17P deletion, a 1416 deletion, a 1420 deletion, etc. And anyway, so I think triplet or quadruplet initial therapy, there's always the debate is once the patient is in remission, should we or should we not use high-dose alkylating agent, high-dose melphalan and autologous stem cell transplantation to consolidate that remission? I'm on the side of doing that because philosophically, again, no matter how good of a remission the patients are in after their initial therapy, I'm not convinced that we've cured them. And whatever cells that are left are somewhat resistant to that initial therapy. And so using a high-dose melphalan as an alkylating agent does a good job of knocking out the rest. And then I think it's pretty clear that some form of maintenance therapy, the most common being lenalidomide as a single agent as maintenance therapy, it does prolong on average the duration of remission. So for patients who are sort of under the age of 70, it's really become a standard as triple or quadruple therapy, collect stem cells, do a stem cell transplant, and then maintenance therapy. There's pretty good data to suggest that if, for whatever reason, the choice is to forego the transplant in the first remission for that under 70 population, doing it in a second remission leads to similar outcomes. And so uh, so I think first or second remission. So the initial therapy is pretty, you could say, standardized at this point. 
what you asked though was, you know, should the second and third line, yeah, the patients progress, yeah, then what do you do? And the answer is, you know, we are fortunate that we have the next generation immunomodulatory agent, pomalidomide, and we have the next generation proteasome inhibitor, carfilzomib. So I would say that combinations, you know, it all depends on toxicity and response to the initial therapies and which ones you used. But the second line of therapy nowadays tends to be if you haven't used a daratumumab containing regimen, usually, or a CD38 directed, we have another CD38 directed monoclonal antibody, which seems to work similarly well. So CD38 monoclonal antibody plus pomalidomide plus dexamethasone tends to be the second line therapy. And the third line therapy tends to be a carfilzomib containing regimen. So I think usually within two to three regimens based on relapses, you tend to then use most of the active agents that we have for myeloma, but fortunately, that can be years down the line that you're starting to think of, all right, now what do I do? I think you actually gave a wonderful description about the effect of immune therapy. So let me even ask about transplant then. Is there a role for allotransplant? Is there graft-versus-myeloma effect? What's the state of the art with allo? Well, so I've got a couple of thoughts. Number one, allogeneic transplant using donor bone marrow, donor lymphocytes, really was the first immunotherapy, right? You know, it was a first cellular therapy. And there's no question there is a graft versus myeloma effect. In my opinion, that effect is less intense, less effective than the graft versus leukemia effect that we see in myeloid leukemias. And so more so even than an allogeneic transplant for leukemia, to have an effective uh, cure rate with allogeneic transplant for myeloma, it does require not only the infusion of the donor lymphocytes, but to really cytoreduce and put the patient into remission before infusing those lymphocytes. And so the the difficulty with myeloma and allotransplant, and the reason why in my heart, I don't think it's ever going to have a very large use, is because we know that there's the age-related toxicity of allogeneic transplant, the graft-versus-host disease. And since the average age of someone with myeloma is in the late 60s, by the time you're 40 years old, you're likelihood of getting a significant toxicity from an allogeneic transplant really goes up significantly. And then, of course, we did a big study about a decade ago where patients who had a perfectly matched brother or sister did an allo transplant for myeloma, and those who didn't. And then we looked a decade later, and what we found was there was no difference in the life and death, you know, being alive or not being alive, overall survival, 10 years later. The difference was that the patients who got the donor transplant had a decreased relapse rate. So there is a graft versus myeloma effect, but that was counterbalanced by the graft versus host disease. And in the end, it was a wash. So currently, the only patients that I really seriously think of doing an allotransplant are the patients who are young, And by young, I mean certainly under age 55 and have high risk biology and are in a beautiful remission. 
So in the end, that becomes a very small subset of patients. Now, that being said, I think that the CAR T cells, using autologous T cells, which in effect, that is the outgrowth of allogeneic transplant, that it is by its nature, it's a graft versus myeloma effect without the graft versus host disease, because they are your own cells. And that, in many ways, is, I think, the superior option for patients with myeloma. So I wanted to ask you about treating patients with myeloma during COVID. How's the pandemic affected your experience as a clinician and patient's experience as well? Well, yeah, I mean, COVID has, I think, impacted us all so profoundly. I mean, and, you know, on the one hand, it has made us creative in caring for patients in this era, both in terms of caring for patients with COVID and trying to figure out how best to do that, and also trying to figure out what's the best place to care for patients. A lot of it is based on the time in the course of the pandemic. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, in March, April, May, June, we had no idea what we were dealing with. Sure. And, and so we were very cautious. We actually turned off the spigot of our auto transplants for myeloma. We felt that given that transplants for myeloma could be done you know, now or they could be done later and there wasn't an emergency to do them, we chose to take our first remission uh, auto transplants offline but on the other hand, we are believers in salvage autotransplants and patients who have myeloma where nothing much is working, and we sometimes just give them a slug of melphalan and an autotransplant just to sort of right the ship. Now, those were sort of urgent transplants, and actually it was very helpful. So by continuing to do urgent transplants during the pandemic, we demonstrated that the hospital was actually very safe and that patients, despite getting this intensive therapy, were able to get through it and to go back into the community with caution and not all get COVID and have a lot of problems. So actually, when we had the second wave of the pandemic, we did not turn off our spigot of auto transplants after that experience and have safely been able to do that. That being said, we've certainly increased substantially our telemedicine interactions, you know, which I think is also for the better that there are many subset of patients, especially in myeloma, where the laboratory results are in many ways the key bit of information, where I think it's a very conducive to doing a telemedicine evaluation and looking at the labs and only having the patients return should they have a need for it. In terms of the actual therapies. Again, we've learned at the beginning, we were very cautious, but we've learned that an infusion area has been very safe. The nurses all have great protocols for caring for patients. And nevertheless, we have learned that we can administer bortezomib, for instance, in the home with home care. We've converted some of our infusions to pills if there are appropriate agents for that. We've done intravenous gamma globulin infusions at home, etc. So there's been actually some benefit in the care that will probably carry over even after the pandemic for our patients with myeloma. But primarily, it has been very encouraging to see that we've been able to maintain the excellent care and the health of our patients throughout the pandemic. 
Ed, I wanted to ask you about underserved populations. And obviously, it's a very broad topic, but there certainly seems to be an increased incidence of myeloma in African-Americans. In your practice, what have you seen and what are some ways to provide better care for African-American patients with myeloma and other underserved groups as well? Well, well, I'm speaking to you from uh, West Philadelphia. That's where the University of Pennsylvania is. And it is a African-American majority area of the city. And certainly there's an increase of frequency of multiple myeloma in this population. And we've been very interested in decreasing barriers to access for the therapies for this population. And we've been, in fact, particularly interested in what we call the financial toxicities of multiple myeloma. Multiple myeloma, as we've discussed, has had such tremendous improvements in survival and in the support of care and in quality of life, but it does come at a cost. The oral agents are hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. A lot of these infusions are very expensive. And in fact, I think multiple myeloma may actually have now become one of the most expensive diseases to treat for society, I guess. So we're very interested in making sure that the population of patients in need have access to this. And so we've been sending out questionnaires to our community to really assess how difficult has it been, particularly in the COVID era, but in general, for the patients to get transportation to the centers, for them to afford the medications that they require. And it's been a a, a sort of eye-opening aspect that has really led us to develop uh, what we hope is a tool to assess the potential before it even happens of financial toxicity and to have an intervention with financial counselors and with social workers, et cetera, to try to, uh, to make that work better. Additionally, we work very closely with the primary care physicians. And in fact, not only that, but the churches in our region, we have an outreach to heighten the awareness of these diseases in the community and to assure that they have easy access to centers like ours. Terrific. And I want to ask you, this is a final question. What are the latest discoveries, the latest advances, the the latest tools and drugs that you're most excited about as we're fighting myeloma with, again, unfortunately, a large number of patients who are diagnosed with this disease? Well, we've made, again, so many advances over the last decade or so that, you know, you would think that we were sort of running out of advances and the contrary is really the case. It just seems like every time we think we're exhausting our ideas for treating this disease, we come up with new strategies. I think the strategy that the entire community is the most excited about is the immunotherapy approach, and particularly the whole area of bispecific antibodies. You know, we talked a bit about CAR T-cells, where you have to actually take out 
immune cells, engineer them to put on their surface warheads, cook them up, and then infuse them back into the patient. That process can sometimes take a month or even longer. And right now we're using it primarily for patients who are heavily treated, who are sick with their myeloma, and really need therapy in a timely fashion. The bispecific antibodies, or what they call T-cell engagers, what they are is sort of two-pronged antibody-like medicines where one prong actually latches on to the myeloma cell, and the other one latches on to the T cells in the patient, activates the T cells, and brings the T cells to the myeloma cell to blow them up. And so these bispecific antibodies, some of them are directed against that B cell maturation antigen, the BCMA. Some of them are directed against other antigens, which is very exciting because most of the CAR T cells are going to be directed against BCMA. And so we're going to have patients who relapse after that and need other therapies. So the bispecific and T-cell engagers are off-the-shelf agents that you can either give as a subcutaneous injection. In general, they're subcutaneous injection medicines or short infusions, and they have long half-lives, and they can lead to responses that are remarkable and prolonged in heavily treated patients. So I think that over the next year or so, we're going to see some huge developments in these antibody therapies and CAR T cells. And then I think the real area of investigation is moving these therapies earlier and earlier and earlier into the therapy for myeloma and see if maybe we can get to that elusive cure of this disease. Which would be wonderful. And I have to say, I'm now looking forward to uh, hopefully re-interviewing you in a few years, hopefully maybe before then, but hearing the next part of that story with the bispecific antibodies. It'd be my pleasure. It would be great. So I have to say, this has been an incredibly interesting episode, and I want to really take the opportunity to thank Dr. Ed Statenmauer for joining us. Ed, thank you again. I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this very, very, very exciting episode about multiple myeloma. I have to say it really was an honor and a privilege to interview Dr. Statmauer and really to get his perspective on taking care of patients now and sort of the decision-making process. For a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. And I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also offers a series of podcasts for patients and families at lls.org slash podcast. We look forward to having you uh, joining us for future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. 
Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org ce. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.